Take your Bibles. If you don't already have them, turn to open, as I hope you do, to John chapter 16. We'll begin reading in verse 4b. Uh, probably in your Bibles, you, you, you already have it divided uh, the way it actually probably should better be set forth. It reads as it is, but I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning. I think that part, I did not say these things to you from the beginning, uh, better belongs and makes sense uh, with verse 5. And, uh, and so we will read it that way. And it's probably, as I said, in your Bibles already divided that way because through the years some, some wise men have noticed that that ended a little strangely there at verse 4. And uh, so they, they did the work for us. But we'll pick up right there. That's where we left off last time. God's word. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will no longer see me. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of God endures forever. Let's ask the Lord's blessings on the reading and the hearing and the preaching. We do, Father, ask for that. That you would give us ears to hear. That we might not be like those of whom Isaiah prophesied. That having ears, we wouldn't hear. Those of whom Christ reiterated. Having ears to hear, they wouldn't hear. Eyes to see, they wouldn't see. Father, we pray that you would open our spiritual eyes, that you would, you would illumine our minds, that we might hear your voice, that we might not be distracted by the voices of men and women and children around us, or even by the minister. But we would have an ear tuned to your voice. As your truths are proclaimed, we do ask this now in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.
In the third vow of church membership in the PCA, we have a doctrine set forth that's central to biblical faith, biblical truth. And it's the necessity of the Holy Spirit in both the individual life and in the corporate life of the church. You recall, this is the way the prepositional phrase lives. The, 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 the third vow is, do you resolve to live a life that's becoming of one who confesses and professes Christ? Now, in that, if that's the way the vow read, you'd almost be foolish to take that vow because you couldn't do it. Not in your own strength, not in your own power. And so we, our forefathers, rightly put that little phrase right in there that says, in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit. That's the only way any of us could possibly, in good conscience and rationally, take that vow to live a life that becomes a Christian. Because otherwise, as I said, we couldn't do it. But because the Holy Spirit is at work in us to will and to do his good pleasure, we can take that vow. And we can believe God that we can live a life that's honoring to Christ because of the Holy Spirit at work in us. Well, we've been looking at this theme ever since we began Chapter 14, verse 1, and particularly verse 15, where Jesus says, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. He dwells with you. He was already present with the disciples. This idea that the Holy Spirit had not been at work in God's people before this is just, frankly, rather ignorant. Certainly missing much of the Bible testimony. But he is going to come in a fullness that the world's not seen before. And, and by the way, this is just good biblical theology. Why is that the case? Why had he not come in this fullness that, he, that he's going to come in, as Jesus is talking about? Well, it's because Christ did not come in his fullness either. So in the, in the progress of redemption, Christ came in the fullness of time. And therefore, the Holy Spirit came in the fullness of time and in fullness We knew little and more, a little more, a little more, a little more about Christ throughout the old, old covenant documents. And then he comes. And even then, God knew that even then, I, I, I just did this, this tour, this class, this intensive class on Presbyterian church history. And 
I had, uh, I, had, I had more than one student say what more than one student has said in the past. This is like a fire hydrant coming at us. That's what the Gospels are like, isn't it? It's like a fire hydrant of information coming at us. And God in his wonderful mercy and great wisdom then gives us all the New Testament epistles of Paul and Luke James, John, Peter, so that we could understand all that that came rushing at us in the gospel accounts, taking it and applying it and explaining it to us. Well, these three chapters, 14, 15, 16, Jesus has, has, has woven the Christian life Living in union with the vine, chapter 15, the first verses, and the necessity of the Holy Spirit upon his departure. And we're back to that theme again. His departure is imminent, and the Spirit is coming. Now, some things to just refresh you about over since we've been out of this for a while. Back to chapter 14, remember... Jesus said that he is going to send another helper to be with you forever. And I explained way back then that this another is another of the same kind. This is not a, a different kind of helper, but the same kind of helper, the same substance. In other words, he's divine fully like I am. That was the promise of the Lord Jesus. I'm not, giving you, I'm not giving you a junior. I'm not giving you a backup. I'm not giving you someone who couldn't start, but he can come in and fill in the gap if somebody gets hurt. This is another one that's of the same stuff I am. Holy divine. As the Father and like the Son, so the Holy Spirit. And so he calls him a helper, just like Jesus is referred to as a helper, one who comes alongside and helps. In fact, we've seen the Holy Spirit called by Jesus three, three titles already or three descriptives, the helper, the interpreter, and also the witness. Now, in this passage, tonight and next Sunday night, we're going to see these two points that you have in your outline. The Holy Spirit as the prosecutor of the case against the world, and the Holy Spirit as the one who reveals the Bible to his church, to his people, and all truth, as he describes it here. And so... Then I want you to notice, before we start, some things that could be missed if we're not real careful. And they can kind of get missed in the big picture. But notice, when we read this passage, he Jesus says in verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. That ties in with what he said already up here in verse 6. But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Have you ever noticed when people are sad, 
when they may be grieving. That's not the time to overwhelm them with all the theology that you know. That was one of the major problems with Job's friends. When you read the book of Job, what Job's friends say is not bad theology per se. It was just bad timing. Bad timing by and large. And Jesus is better than that. He's more caring. He's more tender to his people. Because I've said these things, sorrow has filled your heart. I have more things to say, but, but you can't handle it right now. You just you can't bear it. And so the Holy Spirit, part of the Holy Spirit's work will be to show you more, to say more that I just can't say right now. And you wouldn't understand it. You couldn't take it in if I did say it right now. That's the kind of caring Lord that we have. That's how much he loves us. That's how sensitive that the Lord Jesus Christ is. We can be so insensitive, can't we? Go ahead and nod. We can. I, I can be. If, if, if you've not experienced it, just ask my poor sweet wife. She's, she's been 38 years putting up with my insensitivities. Well, our Lord's never insensitive. Okay, here's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to look at the very first point. The spirit as the prosecutor or the spirit, will, to flesh that out, the spirit will prosecute the case against the world. And so Jesus begins, I didn't say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me and none of you ask me where are you going so the first thing is jesus is picking up where he left off he's been warning them more than once in chapter 14 and following he's presented them with warnings things that are going to come and he's done it just as recent as those first 3 verses in chapter 16 he told them that bad things are going to come, but I'm going to keep you from stumbling. They are going to put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. That, that should take your mind to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says that you're going to be facing persecution. If they persecuted me, and they did, then they're going to persecute you. He said to the disciples. He says here that the persecution is even going to come into the church. Not only is it the outside world that's going to be a problem for Christians. But even organized religion can be. These religious zealots that are, he doesn't say this here, but he could have said it who are going to crucify me, well, they're going to crucify you too. And they won't even care if it's inside the synagogue. That's remarkable, isn't it?
that's not beyond the scope of reality even today. Certainly not beyond the possibility of happening today that people could be persecuted within the church. Sin, as we saw a few weeks ago, remember the sermon? Sin is the it's the old problem. It's the current problem as well. Sin can rise up anywhere. That's the reason the Apostle Paul called the disciple called the, the elders from Ephesus and warned them that there will be wolves in sheep's clothing that will rise up in the church. And that will always cause problems for the righteous people. Wolves with sheep's clothing won't cause any problems for the, for the chaff, for the, for the unbelievers. But it will cause problems for believers in the church. So this message Jesus is bringing here is just as relevant for us as it was for them. But that's the immediate context that he then moves on to say, I didn't say these things to you. What things? These things about persecution. But also, he's already been telling them over and over that I'm going back to the Father. So this is not just a, a near reference, but it also is a far reference. It's a reference to his, his whole teaching. Everything I've been telling you about persecutions that are coming and about my ascent back to the Father. I've been telling you these things. And it's obvious in verse 5 that he's particularly talking about that, that is, his returning to the Father, because he says, none of you are asking, where are you going? Now, if, if you've just perhaps recently been reading back through the Gospel of John, maybe you've already reached there in your Bible reading for this year, then you're mindful that back in chapter 13, verse 36, we read this. Simon Peter said, Lord, where are you going? Jesus said, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. Peter said, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the cock will not crow till you have denied me three times. So see, Jesus had, Peter had asked Jesus about this leaving thing before. But at this point, they're not asking that question. Even though he's just said, I'm going away. I'm going back to the Father. And why? Well, John tells us why immediately. But because I've said these things, sorrow has filled your heart. Sorrow had overwhelmed them. Sadness had taken hold, and they were just, they'd just gone quiet. You ever been that way? You were so sad that you just had nothing to say. Sorrow had such a grip on your heart that you didn't even know. You, you didn't know what to think, hardly what to say, certainly. And that's where the disciples are right now. And then Jesus says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. That's, that's, that had to be hard for them to fathom, don't you think? What, Lord? 
It's to our advantage that you go away? No, it's to our advantage that you stay right here. I mean, you heal people. You raise the dead. We've seen the way you handle those Pharisees. We couldn't do that. We need you. And he says, no, it's to your advantage. Well, let me just suggest at least there's one way it's to their advantage that Jesus goes back to the Father. We could go into greater detail here, but here's at least one. Jesus had assumed flesh. He was forevermore the God-man. He is even now seated on the throne with the Father according to Revelation chapter 3 as the God-man. Remember John sees him as the the lamb slain. He saw him in his humanity as well as his deity in the context of of the holiness of God. What that means is that when Jesus was in Galilee, he was not in Jerusalem. So if Jesus is to remain forever on earth, well, see here, we're already broaching another way it's advantageous because if if he doesn't go back to the Father, then he doesn't go to the cross And if he doesn't go to the cross, there's no atoning sacrifice. There's no hope for them ultimately. But if he is in Jerusalem, and poor Paul one of these days is traveling in Rome and being persecuted, Christ is not there with him because he would be in Jerusalem because he's the God-man. But if I go back to the Father, I'll send you the Spirit, and the Spirit is everywhere. See, the Spirit could be with Paul in Rome. He could be with the disciples in Jerusalem. He could be with them in, 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 in Constantinople. He could be with them in Ephesus all at the same time. So there we've already touched on at least two ways that it's advantageous to the disciples and therefore advantageous to us that the Lord Jesus Christ ascended. He's already hinted also back in chapter 14 that if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and I'll take you to myself. Our hope for the future is because he goes back to the Father. We can just keep unraveling this thing. But that's all the time we have for it tonight. So the disciples, they're in the, in the grips of sorrow because they're thinking about being persecuted. They're thinking about the Lord Jesus Christ leaving them. And he says, it's to your advantage. And then he moves into this. But if I go, I'll send him to you. Now, let me stop right there. Think about this. Over and over, Jesus has been talking about, and this is in keeping with Jesus saying, I'm going to send you another one. In other words, another one like myself. How often, and to be honest, I haven't counted them. 
So I'm asking a rhetorical question, so don't ask how many, because I don't know. I haven't counted them. We could, if we went back and started in chapter 1 and worked our way up till now, how many times the Lord Jesus Christ has said, I came from the Father, or the Father sent me. And now in keeping with chapter 14, I'm going to send you another one, like myself, same stuff, same divine essence. Jesus says, but if I go, I will send him to you. By the way, I have to interject this. One of the reasons we believe that the old creed, as it was amended at Toledo in 589, is the proper statement. That we believe that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Not with the Eastern Church that says the Father through the Son. Because in chapter 14, the Lord Jesus said, I'm going, back, I'm going to the Father and the, I'll ask the Father and the Father will send another one to you. And now Jesus says, I'm going to go back and I will send him to you. The Father and the Son sends the Holy Spirit. Not the Father through the Son. We could go into the theological significance of that, but it may already be obvious to you. It's a very big difference. If the Father sends and the Son sends, rather than just the Father sending. So Jesus now is assuming that role of sending him. And when I do, here's the first thing he says. Now remember the context, the immediate context. Verses 1 and following. They're going to persecute you. And they're going to persecute you for three reasons. And here he sets forth the three reasons and he says the Spirit's going to come and he's going to get them. He's going to deal with them because they persecute you wrongly because they persecuted me wrongly. And so he says it. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. He's going to convict the world of sin. Now, keep in mind, we've seen this before. Jesus makes a distinction between the work of the Holy Spirit with his people in the church and his work in the world. And who's he directing this to? Don't say the church, please. If you opened your Bibles like I asked you to and you followed with your eyeballs on the page and followed the words, you read just what I've read over and over. When he comes, he will convict The world, not the church, not the elect, the world. And the world is a reference to the system. The people of this world, the people of darkness, the people who are against God, the people who are enemies of the church. You're like, wow. So he's not convicting them to draw them to Christ? No. He's convicting them. That is... He is declaring them wrong. We think sometimes he convicts us of sin and I'm so glad. He does convict his people of sin and he turns us and makes our minds think different thoughts. But in this case, the convicting has to do with with a judgmental pointing of the finger. There's There's a famous 
a famous painting of Calvin. It's, it's called The Accusatory Finger. It's, 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 it's Calvin. You may have seen it. It's Calvin uh, teaching, and he's making this pointing. This, it's a crooked finger. <clears throat> I can't do it. But my fingers are too straight. This is the accusatory finger of the Holy Spirit. I tell you from time to time, folks, if we would look at people on the streets, our friends, our neighbors, perhaps our family members, the way Christ looks at them, we'd be far more sympathetic and concerned. Matthew 9, Jesus saw the crowds harassed and helpless like sheep without shepherd and he convulsed he had compassion internally churning his guts were upset over the condition of men and if we if we if we get a a good grip on this that when we see people out on the street who are shaking their finger at god shaking their fist at god and we if, if we could just if we could just, for a moment, stop and think, wow, they're not getting away with this. The Spirit of God is condemning them. We've already, we've already seen this earlier. Jesus says, all those who believe in me will have everlasting life. But those who do not believe The wrath of God abides on them. Doesn't say the wrath of God will abide on them. Or shall abide on them. Present tense, the wrath of God is upon them. And this is what he's fleshing out now. This is part of the wrath of God. It's, you know, sometimes we are so good at bifurcating, dichotomizing The love of God. Well, we think of love and then, well, it kind of came out of God. No, it is God loving us. I don't have some sort of, when I love my children and when I love my wife and I love my grandchildren, I don't have some some disconnected thing that I just put on them that's called love. It's me. It's me hugging. It's me saying. It's me talking. It's me giving. It's me doing. It's me disciplining. And when God loves, it's God. The grace of God, that's God. And when it's the, when it's the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, when it's the condemning finger of the Holy Spirit, it's God condemning it's God's wrath abiding on them it's God's heaviness sitting on them he didn't just put some nondescript something on them he's sitting on them the spirit of God is convicting them of sin notice he he then gets specific concerning sin because they don't believe in me There's been many examples already in John of people not believing in Jesus. 
as I've said to you before, it's not just believing in Jesus, but it's important that we believe Jesus. You get the distinction, right? We believe in him, in his work, in his person, but we also believe what he says. You know, you hear people all the time, oh, I believe in Jesus. I just, you know, there's a lot of things in the Bible I just can't believe. Well, I'm sorry. You don't believe in Jesus then. Because if you don't believe what he said, you don't believe in him. If you don't believe what he has said. And so he says, because you've not believed, the spirit is going to sit on you. He's going to press on you. He is going to judge you because you didn't believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. Well, that's a simple one, isn't it? He has said several times already, I'm going back to the Father. His people believe it. They didn't understand it. Peter didn't understand. John didn't understand, but they believed it. And through faith, they came to understand it. But the world, the world doesn't believe Jesus came down from heaven, took on flesh, lived a perfect life, went to the cross, died a a death that was substitutionary atonement for his people. And he saved them from their sins. And he rose on the third day and he ascended back to heaven and he's coming again in glory. They don't believe that. If they believe that, They bow the knee to Christ. So the Holy Spirit is pointing the accusative finger at the world because they didn't believe that Jesus was going back to the Father concerning righteousness. In other words, what's right? Here's what's right. Jesus did go back to the Father. And you didn't believe it. And you're judged for that. The wrath of God abides on you. That's really it. That's what the Spirit's doing is he's speaking over and over. The wrath of God abides on you because you didn't believe what was right about Jesus. You didn't believe Jesus. You didn't believe in Jesus. You didn't trust what he said. But more than that, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged, Jesus has said he's going to judge the ruler. I'm going to conquer Satan. And they didn't believe that. In fact, they even accused him of being Satan. Remember? And Jesus says, well, wait a minute. You're saying that because I'm casting demons out, I'm Satan. Why would I cast my... Why would I cast my minions out? That'd be counterintuitive. That would be counterproductive. That'd be stupid. If I were Satan, I would multiply them. I wouldn't diminish them. Jesus had also said something else. He had also said, 
Now, back in chapter 12, verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And the Holy Spirit's pointing the finger at them and everyone since then that doesn't believe it. This is a tricky one, isn't it? Because we have to be really careful. Some of you are old enough, I can tell. Some of you are not old enough, I can tell. To remember a, a series of books back in the 1980s and 90s. They became very popular. And they were all about Satan and his power and his dominion in this world. And he was behind every tree, every bush. If something bad was going on in your life or if you were doing something bad, that was Satan. Even before that, this series of books, so-called Christian, was popularized by a comedian in the 70s. The devil made me do it. The devil never made you or anyone else do anything. Your sinful nature did. Your flesh did. Satan has been conquered. The principalities and powers of this world have been conquered by Christ on the cross. And people get it wrong and we have to be really careful. We can acknowledge that, that Satan is a wounded, growling, hurt lion chained to a post but we cannot attribute to Satan powers that he does not have or else we commit the same sin as the world does when they say Christ didn't deal with any Satan they don't even believe in Satan so how could Christ deal with Satan Here's what F.F. Bruce said so, so well. The presence of the Spirit is the token that this prediction that Jesus made that the ruler of this world would be cast out. The presence of the Spirit is a token that this prediction has been fulfilled. Judgment in the supreme court of God has been given for the Son of Man and against the world. The world's spirit ruler in consequence of that adverse judgment has been deposed. In vindicating Christ, the world stands judged by the Spirit. And you say, okay, my goodness. So, how does, how does the Holy Spirit do this? How does the Holy Spirit judge people? How, how, I mean, we don't see the Holy Spirit. God is spirit, doesn't have a body like you or I do. The Holy Spirit, by his very name, tells us that he doesn't have a body. We can't see him. Jesus already explained to us in John chapter 3 that he's like the wind that blows. You can't see him, but you can see the effects. And you can know that when the, when, when, when the world is shaking their fist at God, 
It's in response to the Holy Spirit jabbing them in the chest. How does he do it? Well, he does it first, as we say, immediately. That still voice speaks right to the conscience. You're guilty. You didn't believe in Jesus. You didn't believe that he conquered Satan. And you didn't believe him when he said, I'm going back to the Father. But there's also the immediate testimony of the Spirit to the world. Those parallel, by the way, the immediate testimony of the Holy Spirit to our spirit that we're his children and the mediated testimony of the Spirit to our spirits that we're his children. One is that secret spirit diving in deep, dwelling in the heart of a man and making him miserable because he's wrong. And then there's through the preaching of the word, the Holy Spirit takes it and applies it to men to make them miserable. You say, well, wait a minute. I thought the purpose of preaching was to bring people to Christ. That's one of the purposes. And I'll confess, I was wrong on this for many years until I read the Bible. And probably so were some of you. But let me just read you a couple of a couple of passages from Isaiah. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there without watering the earth and making it produce and sprout and providing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes out of my mouth it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the purpose for which I sent it. You see, if, if the only purpose of God sending his word through the preachers is to save people, then he fails. Because not everyone believes, right? Not everyone responds to the preaching of the word. Yeah, they do. Everyone responds to the preaching of the word. You either believe it unto salvation or you reject it unto damnation. And it accomplishes what God has purposed. Just as it brings up beautiful flowers and it brings up beautiful plants and it brings up beautiful trees. It also brings up the weeds and the briars and the thistles. Just like the rain that falls. Hebrews chapter 6. One of those difficult passages. Says this. Chapter 6. Verse 7 I think. Let me get there. Chapter 6. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But 
if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. See, there's the writer of Hebrews taking that Isaiah 55 passage and applying it even more directly to the purpose of God in sending his word. The Spirit of God takes it, and so people can sit even in a church and be the world. They hear the preaching of the word, and it doesn't enliven them, it deadens them. It doesn't bring them to greater fruitfulness, it brings them to greater despondency. So, here's the question, as the Holy Spirit prosecutes the case, we have to ask ourselves in this place, are we, are, are we of the world? Because, I mean, look, the scriptures tell us, right, that the wheat and chaff make up the church. There's the good stuff and there's the bad stuff. There's the believers and the unbelievers. You say, in the church? Yeah. So which are you? Which finger is the Holy Spirit pointing tonight? The finger that says... You, you're a child of God. You believe Christ. You believe in what he says. You, you believe that he's ascended to the Father. You believe he's coming again. You believe this. You live this. You love this. Or he's pointing the other finger that says, you don't and you're judged. And unless you repent, you will die and go to hell. That's the two options. One is the crooked finger of the Spirit and one is the loving, long finger that draws us closer to Christ. May we go out changed tonight because we know the Spirit is prosecuting His case. May we see the world differently. May we have compassion on them. Because they're standing under the judging finger of the Holy Spirit. And may we speak the truth in love to them this week. Father, we ask that you would work this truth in our hearts tonight. For the glory of Christ and for the good of the church and for the salvation of many. Amen.